today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Alec uh, Manassian, and Manassian is expected in court today. You might remember uh, this was the uh, person allegedly who drove the van uh, through Toronto and, uh, and, and took down lots in his wake. Uh, he's the man accused of the uh, deadly van attack that occurred back in April. To talk more about all of this, he is in court today. Mark Carcassol is with us, news reporter, Global News, and he is with us now. Mark, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So what exactly did happen today? What was the reason of the visit? Uh, it was essentially a sort of a, a short procedural matter. Uh, it took no more than about five minutes. Alec Manassian was not here in person or by video, only his lawyers. Uh, essentially what this was was the last time he was in court, uh, Crown Attorneys had uh, notified the court that they planned to put forward a motion to the Attorney General's office uh, that would waive uh, Manassian's ability to... Uh, uh, essentially stay here in the Court of Justice and move his trial on to Superior Court. That hasn't 100% gone through yet, but it is expected to. Uh, and essentially what this is is a way to just um, shorten up the proceedings, sort of speed things along. So it is expected that uh, his next hearing, which is going to take place December 4th, will take place in Superior Court. That's where uh, high-profile, you know, first-degree murder cases like this one uh, get tried. There's still a ways to go before his trial actually starts, but this speed thing, speeds things up a bit, although his lawyers say it could still be another year and a half or so before he stands trial proper. Obviously, uh, I'm sure that's a benefit to the victims not having to go through this process. Any, bit, any benefit for him at all? Any benefit for him at all? Well, I guess the only benefit would, would be that, you know, things are, are, are done faster. He learns his fate a little faster. There's also the potential for, while his uh, lawyer didn't discuss it today, if he does plan on putting forward any sort of uh, plea in this matter, uh, the ability for him to do that comes a little quicker. Uh, and he's not essentially uh, sitting in limbo there for uh, as long as he would if they had just let matters stand the way they would. Uh, again, uh, his lawyer, Boris Batensky, wouldn't discuss that. He says it's still far too early. Another interesting thing he discussed was the fact that this is such a high-profile case with so many victims, uh, and it had such an impact on the city and the region, really, that he's concerned that his client may not be able to receive a fair trial here. And so while he's not absolutely pursuing it yet, he didn't rule out the possibility of looking to relocate the trial to another jurisdiction where they might be able to find jurors who are, are a little less familiar with the case and uh, might be a little more unbiased. Wow, this is uh, a case that made uh, news right across the country. Is yeah. that difficult to do, to find another place where someone doesn't know about this? I think it's a difficulty, but it's, it's not unheard of. Uh, for instance, Michael Rafferty, when he was tried uh, for first-degree murder in the death of Tory Stafford, uh, that incident happened in Woodstock. His case was relocated not far, but it was relocated to London. So it's, it's nothing that's unprecedented. But, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, given the high-profile nature of this case, the headlines are made right, ar- right across the country, that's, that's not going to be an easy feat. Uh, any word from families, victims' families at this point? Not directly from victims' families, although there was a lawyer here uh, who does represent one of the victims' families. She represents the family of Tesfa Mariam. Uh, her sort of uh, line of discussion here was that uh, there's a fund, I don't know if, uh, if many remember, that was uh, created by the City of Toronto and the Toronto Foundation called the Toronto Strong Fund, and it was to donate money to the uh, victims and their families. And that ended up uh, coming in at a little over $3 million dollars. This lawyer, essentially what she says is that $3 million spread across 25 families 
is just not enough. Many of the victims are still recovering in hospital from their injuries. And as you mentioned earlier, this happened back in April. Uh, these are traumatic injuries, physical injuries, uh, mental and emotional trauma as well. Uh, a lot of scars still being carried there. So she's saying that these victims need more money to deal with the fallout from this incident. $3 million is not enough for all of them. And she's calling on the federal government to step up and pitch in on this fund as well. Uh, any? Do we know anything more about the suspect? There's nothing new at this point because he wasn't here. Uh, his lawyer, Boris Potensky, wasn't really willing to discuss much about him. Uh, wouldn't talk about how he felt about today's matter. Uh, wouldn't talk about uh, how he's doing mentally. He said that there is an option there for him to sort of be reevaluated mentally uh, over the course of these proceedings, but wouldn't really discuss when that would happen or, or if that's something that he plans on pursuing. So we don't really know much more about him than we learned in the days that followed the incident that he's accused in. Uh, does that say anything with with passing on the preliminary trial? Does, you know, obviously, the more that uh, uh, the more that he's in court, the more we find out about him. Is this all part of that process? Just you know, the finding out the the, the least about him, or will we eventually find out everything? Um, we will eventually find out everything. These always do happen. In fact, many of the things that come out in preliminary trial uh, can't be reported publicly anyway. So I don't know necessarily that this is a move to, to save uh, his background getting out there. We do know a lot about the sort of circles he hung out in online already. This is all stuff that came out uh, shortly after his arrest. So I don't personally believe that that was a strategy here. Right. Uh, but I'm not a lawyer and I'm not Boris so I don't really know. And obviously there is enough evidence as there is to go to court, so it's a moot point. What about Manassian's family? Uh, They had been commenting or had said that they had grieved for the victims of the attack. Any more information from them? Nothing from them either. Uh, Same as we had heard before. Uh, There was no one here in support of him today. The courtroom was was rather full, but it was mostly our types, right? It was mostly sort of reporters that were here uh, to watch and report. Uh, A couple uh, legal students as well, it seemed like, and that was pretty much it. Uh, what happens now? What's next? Well, now he's back in court on December 4th, and that will be in Superior Court uh, in our courthouse on University Avenue in downtown Toronto. So that's sort of the last relocation, unless, of course, the actual trial, trial proper gets moved to another jurisdiction. Uh, but he's being moved downtown, and that's where uh, proceedings will start ramping up now for uh, the eventual trial, and we'll see what happens next. And how long are they anticipating this to take again? Well, they're expecting that it could be anywhere up to 18 months before his trial actually starts. Right. And in a trial like this, as high profile as, as it is with many victims, I mean, we've seen cases with just one victim go almost three months. Uh, so it's tough to say exactly how long this would go, but uh, I, I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility for this to go at least, if not more than three months. Really? Um, obviously, this is a terror, a terrorist type attack, but a not enough, a not enough evidence at this point to to lay any charges of that nature. Has there been anything more on that front as to motive or what may have led him to do this uh, mental illness, um, sympathies towards some group, anything? Not at this point. I mean, we've all heard the, the talk of, of him sort of hanging out in online incel circles beforehand. And the lawyer who is here uh, speaking on behalf of the families said that in her personal opinion, uh, you know, while she has no involvement in his actual trial, in her personal opinion, this was a terror attack uh, because it was done allegedly, uh, you know, in the name of an ideology. She feels that it was based on misogyny. It may not be sort of religious grounds like the typical terror attacks we're used to hearing about, but in her thoughts, 
this was a uh, a terror based motive, a terror based attack, and and she would like to see that play out in courts. But at this point, uh, we don't know if it actually will. So uh, the charges are the charges to this point. As as I mentioned, it, there doesn't police said there doesn't appear to be evidence to the contrary. Could that come up? I mean, could that change? There's always a possibility that charges could be upgraded, new charges could be added on, depending on the police investigation, what they find. There's also a matter of, you know, police are, are trying to make charges stick in court, right? And and so they could come up with a, a terror charge, I'm sure, but whether they think that that's something that would actually be triable in court and reasonably lead to a conviction, that could be another possibility why we haven't seen that pop up yet. But as far as things stand right now, it is still... Uh, 10 charges of first-degree murder, 16 charges of attempted murder. Uh, If they do, in fact, end up moving this case, any idea, or this trial, any idea where it would go, how far away from downtown? I I, I would assume, again, this is just me sort of giving my personal opinion from experience covering trials before. Something like this, I'm assuming, would have to go far away. Uh, I do think they would even be allowed to relocate it to another province, although I'm not certain about that. Uh, but it, it's all that's all up to, you know, the judges, uh, the judge rather, and the uh, the lawyers involved. Like I said, Michael Rafferty was moved half an hour away. Uh, and that was a trial that also made headlines uh, across the country. So it's really tough to say until it actually happens, if it happens. Does the waiving of the preliminary trial, does it lead you to believe that this is more cut and dry, enough evidence, let's get on with it? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, you know, I mean, clearly there was lots of witnesses. There was lots of witnesses and and lots of victims uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of work done by police uh, to sort of lay these charges and do their investigation. I feel that that's that's part of what this was. Uh, You know, it 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 really streamlines the process. And, you know, maybe the defense feels that they just don't need it. They've already sort of got whatever defense they plant him out in court ready to go. And uh, and they're ready to do that. Uh, Have people in Toronto forgotten about this? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, this is still something I think that comes up at, uh, at dinner tables uh, across the city uh, and within the, the GTHA. I'm sure people in Hamilton still talk about it, too, because this is really the first time something like this has happened in Toronto. It's the first time that our region has been touched by something like this, whether you want to call it a terror attack or not, uh, a mass killing of this sort of brutality. Uh, so it, it's something that people, I don't think, have forgotten and people never will forget. And it's one of those cases that whenever you see something similar pop up somewhere else in the world, it brings back those memories here. Mark, I can't let you go since you're in the global newsroom. Uh, any comment on what's happening with the McClintic case today in, the, in, in respect to uh, the fact that the brother has come out and said that she should not be in a healing lodge? Yeah, that, that was that's an interesting development. And uh Unexpected, definitely, uh, at least by me anyway. I mean, I haven't actively been covering it. It's been more uh, sort of uh, our group in, in Ottawa that have been covering it because right. it's sort of a federal matter now. But I can tell you a lot of people uh, were kind of caught off guard by that. But I think at the same time, uh, the brothers kind of being uh, applauded for taking that stance. It's a stance that, that many people feel. If someone murders a child, uh, they should do the time that they're prescribed and, you know, do the whole thing. And, and that's sort of the, the message that Rodney Stafford's been putting out there, and that's the message of the rally that he's having in Ottawa tomorrow. 
so I think there will be a lot of people commending that man today. Uh, are you surprised we haven't heard more on this from the government? It's kind of, you know, it came out a, a few weeks ago and then it kind of uh, died. And, and, and I was wondering then why uh, Rodney Stafford, the father, was waiting so long till November to actually do this, because this was a few weeks ago that it came up. Are you yeah. surprised that we haven't heard more from the government on this than we're investigating? I mean, how long do you have to, how long does it take to figure this out? Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not too surprised only because it's it's a story that's not good news for the government. It's bad news for the government. And generally, any government or corporation or anyone, when they're the subject of bad news, you know, might sort of talk about it up front as Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, the uh, the Minister of uh, uh, Community Safety, Ralph Goodale. You know, they spoke about it at the time. But then I think the sort of PR strategy there is to kind of try to make it disappear and, and not mention it again. So it doesn't surprise me that they haven't spoken about it. They could be working on something. And uh, if they do come up with something, I'm sure that, you know, we'll be the first mm. ones to hear about it. But it, it doesn't surprise me that they've been so quiet on it now. Mark Carcasol has been with us, news reporter, Global News, talking about the uh, Alec Manassian uh, trial uh, going to court today. And, of course, uh, the van attack in Toronto and touching on uh, what's happening with the Stafford family and the McClintock case. We'll talk about that coming up next break. Mark, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, The U.S. president says he tells the truth when he can. In an interview with ABC News, uh, well, I, well, you know what? Let, let's let's just play the little clip here. Uh, this is a clip of uh, Jonathan Carl, uh, ABC's chief White House correspondent. Finally, I remember you remember well in the campaign. You made a promise. You said, "I will never lie to you." So, can you tell me now? Honestly, have you kept to that promise at all times? Have you always well, been truthful? Well, I try. I mean, I do try. I think you try, too. You say things about me that are not <laughs> necessarily correct. I do try, and uh, I always want to tell the truth. When I can, I tell the truth. I mean, sometimes it turns out to be where something happens that's different or there's a change, but I always like to be truthful. All right. Uh, uh, it's amazing if we had uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR expert, on right now. She would say there's the, class, the classic bait and spin. Uh, he, he, of course, uh, took the question and then spun it back around to the reporter and said, well, what about you? Uh, I, I'm sure you have a hard time, you know, with my problem. Uh, and again, we saw this come out of late when he talked about the birthright issue, uh, which he's trying to change the Constitution of the United States, where uh, now, if anyone is born there in the country, they are a naturalized citizen. And he said that no other country does that. Well, they do, including us, his neighbor, and over 30 other countries. Here is a clip of Donald Trump telling that lie. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. Let's bring in George Breckenridge. He's probably giggling right now. Retired political science professor, McMaster University. That's, of course, between all of the tiers. George is with us now. George, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Scott. Have we got to the point where we just don't care if people lie to us like this? (laughs) Well... The problem with Trump is that he can't help it. He, when he talked about, you know, I try to tell the truth, he means that, but he doesn't know what the truth is. I mean, everything, everything he says, everything, is in the, in the service of his fragile ego. 
So what he has done, he has created this this world where he believes, where he says what he needs to believe is true. And it is simply to his his pathology, you know, his extreme narcissism. So from his point of view, the difference between lying and what we would consider the difference between lying and truth simply doesn't exist. You know, he he the New York Times was keeping track at one point of the number of lies, and they were, they were in the 7,000 or something like that. Well, the Washington Post says uh, 5,000 false or misleading claims yeah. in the 600 days, averaging 8.3 a day, and that seems to be going up. <laughs> That's right, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he can't help it, I don't think. He, 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 you know, we say he's a pathological liar. He's pathological. He can't help it. He's done this for so long. Living in this world, everything of which has to make him look good. Should the media pin him on this and just play the clip that I just played you and say, explain that, Mr. President? Well, yeah, You just we, lied. Yeah, well, we have, to, we have to maintain that what he's, a lot of, so much of what he says is lying. And, and he's not telling the truth. We have to keep repeating that. The, the problem is, it's though... It's not going to affect him. He, he can't help what he's doing. The, the problem is, George, is the public doesn't believe anybody. So they don't, know, they don't understand which well, side is true. lying, because the other side, they feel, is just as bad. Well, that's true. You see, the, the, the danger in the whole thing is that it undercuts public confidence. And the people begin to wonder, you know, what's true and what isn't true. But there's a sense in which he's not doing it deliberately. He simply can't, he's not using lying as a strategy. He simply can't help it, you know, because he will say, he doesn't do any homework. He doesn't know very much about most, most issues. And so... So it's not so much that he's a liar, he just doesn't really have the capacity to grasp what the questions are. Yeah, because are. everything is to, is to do, is bound up with his constant need that's why he has to be in the news all the time. Why he likes people who like him, you know, and and anybody who attacks him, he just doubles back you know, and punches back. So, how do Americans react to this? How do Americans <laughs> know what's true and what's not? What to believe? <laughs> well, that's the that's the role of the press. To you know, and they've plugged away at it. It's been very difficult because. Naturally, he keeps attacking them mm-hmm. because he doesn't think you know, when they just say something critical, you know, he doesn't, that doesn't make him feel good. So he has to deny it. And so but the press's job is to keep sanity <laughs> and to preserve the distinction between lying and truth, which most people recognize. Will this keep getting worse? And yes. un- until when? Will, well, will... It, will, it will get worse. I mean, you, you may have noticed the last couple of months. He's he's been pretty frantic about the election. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's dashing or desperately dashing around the country, yeah. and throwing. Well, up he's continually been campaigning ever since he won the presidency. I mean, he's well, never stopped yeah. campaigning. Yeah, but this, the whole thing is intensified. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. He, he's doing about ten, you know, of these rallies. He's going to states where the Republican Party doesn't want him to go. Yeah, he just needs to go, and and he's talking more, and he's. You know, the whole thing is, and he, because he's getting frantic, I think, he realizes that no matter what happens next Tuesday, it's not going to be good for him. It's just a matter of degree how well the Democrats do, I think. Can we say that confidently, George? I mean, yeah. my goodness, everybody predicted the opposite with the last election. How oh, can I you know, predict this moving forward? Uh, no, I know. No, I, I don't think so. Partly because the, the history is against him in the first place. You know, the average swing even if you have a normal 
presidency right. with 23 seats. Yeah. yeah. And the polls have swung back towards the Democrats in the last little while. So, so a lot of races that the Republicans should be doing very well in, they're very close, you know. So that, and that's true across the country. So there's too much evidence, I think, that uh, the Democrats are going to do pretty well. And, um, it, it, you know, it, it obviously threatens them because they're going to investigate the life out of them. Can... And, and, of course, the Mueller inquiry on a separate track is, is you know, is, is grinding along. <laughs> Who knows exactly. What like, what, what happened with the... Man, it seems like that was about five or six or ten events ago, the Mueller investigation. Well, of course, they, 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 they keep a low profile during an election. Yeah. That's what yeah. they always do. Yeah, that's a good point, so too. People are expecting to hear more indictments and things like that shortly after the election, I yeah. think, it's next week. That's a good point. Uh, can President Trump keep keep running the same campaign can he use because we've talked about this with the prime minister can the yeah. prime minister use you know the, the the sunny ways campaign into the next election no yeah. it's a different time can he keep running on this because well, it, it's the only way he knows it's the only i mean uh, that's what got him into the presidency in the first place so he's By just going to keep making playing, america great again yes but but more particularly playing on people's fears that's what he's doing now yeah He's resorted back to that. The caravan. Yeah, the caravan. This is a caravan of poor women and children and barefoot men. They're going to take over America? Come yeah. on, get serious. The whole thing is, so he's exaggerating the thing out of any proportion and hinting the Democrats are behind it. It's, 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 it's all nonsense, but it, it feeds in back to his base and their, their resentment against immigrants. Uh, he's he's constantly made the uh, the connection between the media and fake news. Yeah. Uh, this has slowly been building and building and building. Yeah. And, and, and and I remember, oh, I think he told a lie there. Oh my goodness, I think he told another one. And then people were kind of <laughs> surprised. Now we're getting headlines in the Washington Post that say, "When I can, I tell the truth." <laughs> so has it got to a point where his lying has become an issue? And, and and it's more than ah, it's just the way he is. Well, well, but it's just the way he is. But it, but it's the consequences of this. As I say, it, are those it, consequences catching up to him? Um, well, yeah. I mean, in the sense that what he's never been able to do, what he never even tried to do, is expand beyond his base. You know, he's always he's only ever appealed to his base. He's never tried to appeal to a wider. You know, as most most presidents try to do, obviously, to a wider section of the population. He's never tried that. So he's totally dependent. The only way he knows how to rev up the base is to show them this kind of red meat. And, and you know, the reddest kind of meat is to raise, you know, to pretend all all illegal immigrants are murderers. And, you know, this train of poor people fleeing violence uh, contain all kinds of, you know, Criminals, various guys. That's the only way he knows. He's so he's reverting back to his basic message, which is the one he started with. You know, you remember he came down the circus and said, "Oh, Mexicans are rapists and whatnot." Yeah, yeah. You know, so he, that's been his theme, and he's reverting back to it out of desperation. He's throwing in a number of other things, and he's got a new racist ad out. So it's, it's yeah, really, they. Really, I saw that on the news last yeah, night. Yeah, it's a real Holy desperation. Smokes. Yeah, which I don't think is going to work uh, because uh, you know the, the, he's only and he's only campaigning among his base. Yeah, he's not reaching out to blue states at all. He hasn't gone to a single blue state. 
Will this all settle down after the midterms? <laughs> and, and really, why? that's a dumb question, George, because he's been campaigning since he won. Well, that's a while he has. And he's, you know, the, the day after he won the election, he, he filed for re-election in 1990. Yeah. I am one of the few people who thinks he will not run in 1990. But uh, I, I, I noticed uh, Josh Garber said the same thing, so, so I'm not the only one saying that. But uh, he, can't, he can't say that, of course. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he'll run because I think he knows he'll lose. And because I think the strain on him is really is really colossal. It's high, you know, it must be an enormous effort to keep his ego intact. You know, it's, it's, he can't help himself. So the, the world has to be arranged, and everything he says has to be arranged in such a way that he, you know, that it makes him positive, makes him makes him the winner, makes him the hero, and uh, that's why he likes people like Putin. And uh, Kim Jong Un and yeah. whatnot, because they say nice things about him, they flatter him, and he. So he says, they say, say nice things about me. I say nice things about them. I fall in love with with Kim, you know, because they make him feel good. And he, if you read the Woodward's book, one of the things that I think he he had was totally naive and ignorant about the presidency. He thought it would be easy, yeah. a bit like, but like being a king ordering people around. Yeah. And also he expected the press to love him, you know. Mm. And, of course, immediately all this lying starts, and they start getting critical. At what, ta- at what point does the fatigue factor come into play here? I mean, here we are two years in. You're coming to the midterms. It's every day there's a story. Oh, I, I mean, and in some cases, there's two stories a day. Um, you know, they always say the brightest star burns out quicker. Yeah. Uh, at what point do people just say, you know what, I'm tired of talking well, about Donald Trump? That. I think there's a lot of evidence that people are just tired of the, of the daily, almost hourly drama. And and the anxiety levels, there's medical evidence that anxiety levels among Americans has really has really grown under Trump. I mean, it's all very well for us sitting here. You know, he's not our president, but uh, for the Americans, it's a very serious matter. And so I think this is this is a feeling of exhaustion right across the country, yeah. which is why I think the Democrats will do well. In his battle with the media, mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, he's ratcheted up that rhetoric as well, uh, in his battle with the media, is he winning that? Uh, time, after time, no, will, will he eventually be worn down on that? Well, he's already getting worn down, but he's doing so many of these rallies. Even Fox News stopped, has stopped carrying them live. Because the audience for them has just gone down. It's so it's so it's so much the same, over and over and over again. And so Fox News used to, you know, and the the original, the other networks originally play, you know, went live to these things. They stopped yeah. doing that a long time ago. But even Fox News has stopped doing that. So he's losing his audience. Because Fox News is doing it simply because they're losing the audience. And, you know, they have a better audience for another program in that, in that time slot. Hmm. So he's, he's, he's not gaining anything. And the, the exhaustion is, is already there, I think.
We were talking in our last segment with somebody from the Samara Center for a Democracy. Yeah. They did a, a report on the extreme partisanship of Canadian politics. Yeah. Obviously, since uh, the United States is is the country that it is and a world leader, as soon as they start doing something, everyone else follows. And and we've heard a lot of people say that there, a lot of people are worried that there's just going to be Donald Trumps popping up all over the world. Does yeah. the rest of the world, as we're watching it from afar, aren't we more likely to be critical of this sort of thing Absolutely. and and, well, and learn from it as opposed to copying it? Absolutely. I, I heard Michael Adams, the pollster, speak recently about this, and he doesn't see it that way at all. I mean, he think we are really substantially different from the Americans. We have some of the polarization, but it's nothing, nothing like what you've got in the United States. I think he's he's to the rest of the world. He's an example of the dangers of this kind of this kind of so-called populism. So if 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 everyone is watching him and seeing the blunders that he's making, uh-huh. why are populist leaders gaining attention? Well, it's for local reasons. There's a there's a reaction. See, in, in Europe, they really did feel invaded by you know in continental right. Europe. They really did see you know they, they were talking in terms of millions of people. Yeah, they were ground zero. That's yeah. right. Yeah. and and that understandable or. You, you would you would expect raises resentment and and it goes to the right wing parties who are anti immigrant but uh whether how far this will go um is not not entirely clear but i i so and it's more in some countries than in others but the anti immigrant feeling was really uh, really jacked up by this invasion of people from the south which has eased up a lot, of course. It's not nearly as strong as it was. Uh, now, we have an advantage in Canada. We only have one border. <laughs> and even even the number of refugees who are leaving the United States is, is very small. You know, it's not, it's maybe, not maybe Trump will do that. He'll just funnel them right up the center of the uh, <laughs> states, right up into Canada. Yeah, you could do Just that. take them right up I-75. <laughs> That might be a sensible thing for him to do, actually. Oh man! But uh, and uh, you know, and we we're perfectly capable of absorbing these kind of people and these kind of refugees. We've, we've got plenty of room for that. Are um, more people following politics now in oh, North absolutely. America because of this? I mean, because well, in Canada they're following American politics. Should we not be? Degree. Should we not be thanking him for that? That he's turned <laughs> boring politics well, into a reality there, show? Well, there are two positive things that have come out of it. One is that. The public attention, including in Canada, I think in the rest of the world, has really shot up. And that, as you say, is a good thing. The other good thing it's done is revive investigative journalism. You know, that's out. right. It's made us pull our socks up, man, yeah. and make sure that yeah, you're right before yeah. you open your yap. No, yeah, that's very it's true. It's a real challenge to the media. Yeah. 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 And not so long ago, people were arguing that investigative journalism, you know, given the, the, the less pre, you know, pr, um, print media, the investigative journalism was yep. dying. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sure not dying now. I mean, the competition between the New York Times and the Washington Post alone to get scoops and inside information has just been hectic. So it's been a, the, the media have met the challenge really pretty well. So do you and, think? And polls show that most people believe the media. 
have ha, has the electorate realizes this is what happens when we don't pay attention. This is what we happens when we take our hands off the wheel. Well, that's what that's what the Democrats are arguing now. I mean, I just watch Oprah Winfrey in, in Georgia, you know, exhorting people for all kinds of reasons to get out and vote. You know, and I think that's right. I think there's been a, a gradual decline in voting, and I think this makes it, people realize that. Voting is important. Otherwise, you end up with something like this. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A welfare reform announcement is scheduled for next week. What can we expect? How is that making people feel? Uh, these will be unveiled next Thursday by Children and Community Service, uh, Social Services Minister Lisa McLeod. Uh, she says that uh, people will be pleasantly surprised next week. Let's bring in Deidre Pike, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and is on the line with us now. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. So how do you feel about this? Uh, People will be pleasantly surprised. Do you think you will be? Uh, You know, I'm a a bit nervous about that, really. Um, You know, I think that uh, we, I think that we use words a little differently, Um, the minister and I, you know, she also mentioned compassion, that these would be compassionate changes. And one of the first things she did was change the uh, social assistance planned increase from 3%, cut in half to 1.5%, and called that compassionate. So so based on that, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe we get pleasantly surprised by different things. So I, I, I'd be pleasantly surprised if she reversed that decision and uh, and changed a few other things that have been floated out there already. Uh, I want to read you a note that I received from somebody. Uh, I've been on ODSP for over 40 years. I find every time I get some extra uh, money from ODSP, my rent goes up, my grocery goes up, uh, my basics go up. Uh, these people here, we get a raise and the price goes up. Never get ahead, always falling behind. Controls, government uh, really has no controls. The only time living is eased is when the economy tanks, goes down, slows. The rich is affected 100%. Middle income, 50%. Low income is not affected. Don't give ODSP recipients anything as always. Hit the rich and a long recession, with a long recession. Obviously, you can hear the frustration in the voice. Mm-hmm. Or in the note, yeah. rather. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 40 years um, on a system uh, that, you know, has seen better days, that's for sure. Um, and so I can imagine that this, uh, that what this person uh, might be feeling and, and with other changes coming in. And, and this same person was uh, under the impression, um, you know, just a few months ago that they'd be getting an increase of of three percent now that's one and a half percent and and they're right things have gone up uh you know um uh some some businesses have planned for uh, a 15 dollar minimum wage and increased prices accordingly and and now they're only going to be paying workers 14 dollars for the next couple of years so anyway there's lots to lots to consider in that analysis but uh um yes uh, the frustration and the fear i'd say the other the other word um, that people on OD- ODSP and OW uh, would be feeling uh, right now is fear. What do you want to hear from this announcement? Well, like I said, I mean, I think that there's been two main things have already happened that, uh, you know, we've been calling for the reversal of. But I, 
I'm, you know, I'm not real, uh, or I am realistic, I suppose, about it, and I don't live with with uh, extreme hope that uh, that in fact um, the increase uh, to social assistance would be, um, you know, reverted back to the to at least three percent and tied to inflation. Uh, that was the plan with the um, with the former government that that uh, that rate would at least be tied um, to the to that, and then um, the other. Uh, I think is out the door, which is basic income, and uh, there's no seeing that again. So, so what we're looking for now, really, I, I think that uh, the Income Security Advocacy Centre for Ontario has put together um, a really good uh, platform of of five principles for an effective and compassionate social assistance system. So, really, picking up on the language of the government, they want effectiveness, and we've heard the minister use the word compassion, and so. Um, what we're looking for is income adequacy, and so I've mentioned that around rates. Um, we're looking for uh, inclusion, economic and social inclusion, and that, uh, you know, under her phrasing around compassion, you know, comes from um, recognizing that uh, we currently have a system that's quite punitive, that involves surveillance, uh, you know, in a way that sets people up from the beginning as if they are. Uh, you know, in, infringing and and stealing and um, and frauding, defrauding a system. Um, so we want a system that uh, that has access and dignity. Um, and uh, the other part about the system that's really important is that uh, in the in the last document that was going to that had a lot of impact on the, the direction of social assistance, there was quite a bit of. Um, movement around reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. There's, uh, you know, Ontario Works and ODSP is a system that uh, uh, also provides economic outcomes for Indigenous people, and um, there needs to be some some remote community allowances to make up for uh, where people live in this province and the costs there. And then finally, the fifth principle is around human rights, uh, equity and fairness. And so uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of social factors that contribute to the need for social assistance supports and um, structural, structural and systemic things that need to be addressed. So we hope the system uh, looks at that as well, that this system review will have in, included things like uh, social determinants of health and, and race and things that, uh, that give people uh, different accesses in life. Is money getting caught up in bureaucracy as opposed to getting to the people that really need it. Is there a way to simplify this? And, you know, obviously the basic income was a, was a, an experiment that was going down that road. But it, are you concerned about the bureaucracy involved in all of this? Uh, yes, and I think that the... Um, yeah, your comment on basic income is, is correct in that uh, this was a way of, of really seeing how a system could run with... Um, with the it was a change of template. Of it was something work. different, yeah. Yeah, doing more of the kind of, uh, you know, responding to the needs people might have when they reach out um, for support, but not a monthly, um, yeah, not a monthly kind of uh, taxing punitive uh, meeting to just see um, where folks are at. I mean, that's the kind of thing that uh, even the Ontario Municipal uh, Social Service workers themselves uh, as an organization provincially, they met with the minister and they put forward ways that the system could be more efficient. The SAMS program is the computer program that was implemented a couple of years ago. It's taken so long for that system to be um, to show its usefulness, I, I think, frankly. And um, 
So we're, uh, you know, there's some, some ways that that could be improved and the efficiencies there uh, go back into the hands of the, the people who need it. Um, they've also uh, talked about, um, again, the less surveillance and, uh, and allowing for uh, the workers in the system to do, um, yeah, that there's, there's better ways, uh, use of their time mm-hmm. um, than to be, to be hmm. double-checking on fraud rates. A welfare reform announcement is scheduled from the uh, provincial government coming up next week. Uh, Deirdre Pike has been with us, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Deirdre, thanks for the comments. We'll talk again next week and see how this all pans out. Thanks for the time. Okay, thanks, Scott. I look forward to that. Take care, man. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.